We've had this sort of demonization of red meat and cholesterol going on for quite some time now. He was basically telling me how wonderful the diet is and everybody he knows he's ever been on it has had tremendous results. We've got to change the course of where we're headed because we're headed to a very bad place. One in four Americans are on some sort of drug for their mental health. One out of two Americans are now clinically obese, not just overweight, but obese. People over 65 are on average of five different medications. Where does it stop? There's no evidence that it's turning around. It's a corporatocracy, and, and the pharmaceutical industry sits very prominently at the head of that. It is clearly in the name of profit. When you fix your diet and you get healthy, you're like, wait a minute, this is BS. I think we can do things better. And they, they don't want people questioning what they're doing, I think. I am all for dietary freedom. If you want to be vegan or plant-based, go for it. What I don't like is people mandating what I can eat because it doesn't work for a lot of other people. And it certainly wouldn't work for me. I think we need to start eating more meat and producing more meat. And, you know, of course, we can do it in a way that's as sustainable as possible. And I think there's more work to be done in that area. I mean, you can do something about this. You vote every time you go to the store and buy something. And so if you're disgusted by that, you need to just stop supporting these companies because every dollar you give to one of these companies gives them more power over you. I do think it's important for any man or woman to understand and know how to cook a good steak. That is an essential survival skill. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. You know, it's not often that I have a guest on the show whose work has affected me in such a deep and personal way. And that's why I'm super excited to have this gentleman on the show. He is the author of the seminal book, The Carnivore Diet. He's one of the world's leading thought leaders on the importance of eating meat. And he is one of the ones who's at the forefront of standing up for our freedom to be able to consume meat going forward. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Dr. Sean Baker. Welcome to the show, Sean. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, man. That's uh, that's quite an intro. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah, I am definitely uh, like I said. I, I think meat is great. I think that it has a lot of benefit. But I think it's the most important thing we can do is is advocate to to let people eat what they need to eat. And as you know, there's been a huge, huge push to get us to reduce, you know, potentially restrict or even ban meat in some cases. So we've got to we've got to definitely collectively as a society say that's a you know a big fat no we're not gonna we're not gonna tolerate that damn straight damn straight before we get into that in a big way sean a lot of the folks who listen to the show are gonna know who you are but there's a whole bunch who aren't so why don't you get started by telling us your backstory how'd you get to be the great sean baker <laughs> well i don't know about the great but uh, I, you know, my background is as as a, as a physician. I was an, an orthopedic surgeon for for many many years. Uh, I uh, kind of, you know, had a background where a biology degree. Went to medical school. Actually, left medical school to play professional sports for a few years, and then eventually came back in. I joined the military at the same time, and and kind of did that. Got into private practice for a number of years, and just kind of serendipitously um, stumbled onto. The fact that, you know, I, I was about 40, I don't know, mid, mid early 40s when I sort of realized that my health wasn't where I wanted it to be. So I started playing with diet, you know, um, and uh, found that uh, by adjusting that, I, I felt tremendously, uh, you know, better. Applied it to some of my patients, and it happened to be a very low carb approach at the time, uh, sometimes ketogenic diet type propanide. And I started noticing that the patients were, you know, not only were some of them losing weight, but uh, more importantly, their their joint pain was going away. The reason I had them go on the diet in the first place was to prep, prep them for surgery so they would be less likely to have complications for surgery. And a lot of times we just canceled their surgery because they no longer had pain. And I thought that was quite interesting. So I kind of, you know, pursued that and eventually um, sort of to, to, to sort of sort of really 
push sort of lifestyle stuff to the point where I left orthopedics and, uh, you know, full, formed a, you know, a company now it's called Rivero, which is a, uh, digital healthcare company licensed in all 50 States where we just, you know, we, our, our goal is to, you know, basically treat disease with lifestyle management rather than the, the typical pills and procedures. And we're having, you know, a pretty significant success, uh, with that. So, I wrote a book called a carnivore diet, you know, my own journey, you know, with, with figuring out my health, I went through all, all different ty- types of, yeah, there you go. I, I did all different types of dietary interventions on myself. And finally, you know, it's kind of weird. I stumbled up across this small group of crazy people eating nothing but meat, which I thought was absolutely crazy. Like everybody does. Right. But I was open and minded enough to try it. And I was really blown away with how much better I felt as a, you know, at that time, a uh, just about to turn a 50 year old man. And, uh, you know, the kind of the rest is history. I kind of got on social media, started talking about this. You know, as you know, I've been on, you know, Rogan's podcast now twice. And, uh, you know, now we have, gosh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have done this with, uh, uh, you know, generally pretty, pretty darn good success. So I think there's something clearly there. And uh, I am currently, you know, obviously still promoting this as an option as a therapy. I really think of it as a therapeutic tool. And we're, we're finally getting to the point where we're starting to get people interested in researching this, which I'm really excited about the upcoming, you know, next couple of years. So that's kind of the brief background. That's an incredible background. And uh, I'd love for you to say on air, what you were telling me off the air about the difference between your first and the second appearance you had on the Rogan show. Cause I think that'll be illuminating for everybody listening to it. Well, yeah, I mean, I went on, I'd been on this diet about a year, had a small social, you know, a few thousand people on social media following me and, uh, you know, Joe Rogan got, got wind of it and invited me on the show. And, you know, at the time I didn't, I didn't really realize the impact that Joe Rogan had at the time. And this is even back in 2017 before he's got as big as he is now, but he's still quite, uh, quite popular. And, and so as I can remember him telling me about this all meat diet, I think he just thought I was nuts. <laughs> he saw, <laughs> was just crazy. He's a doctor, but he's crazy. You know, I, I thought it was just for entertainment value. And, you know, and so I went on the show and then he's had some subsequent guests on the show and then he's actually done it himself over the years. But, you know, the initial, the initial thought was, you know, you're a nutty guy and I don't believe you. (laughs) And then I went on, you know, just actually a week ago today and the, the, the climate was a hundred percent, a hundred percent, you know, 180 degrees reversed. I mean, this time he was basically telling me how wonderful the diet is and everybody he knows he's ever been on it has had tremendous results. So, He's act, you know, he's been converted into someone who, you know, thoroughly understands the value and benefit of this. And so it was fun. You know, it's kind of nice to say, hey, look, you get it now. You've done it. Because there's a lot of people that are critical. I mean, all kinds of people have criticism. Most of them have not done it. And I think that's the difference. You know, you do it and you say, hey, look, there's something here. I feel I do actually feel better. And I mean, and for many people, they are able to, you know, get off medications and their disease processes seem to reverse. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, it was, it was a fun fun time this time. So that's incredible. To me, um, one of the things that I like about Joe Rogan is he's a man who's open to changing his mind when he sees evidence. He's not one of these ideologues who's like, you know, whatever I think is right, even if everybody all around the world says it's wrong and it can show me that it's wrong. When he sees that he's wrong about something, he changes his mind. And I think that's fantastic for somebody with his level of reach and influence. So Kudos to him and good for you that you were able to have two incredible experiences going on a show. And the second one, he was much more receptive to your message. There's a fellow I had on my show um, who's from Canada, where I live. His name is Dr. Tony Martin. He and his family have been running a, um, a practice in Sudbury, which is in northern Ontario, since 1911. So his, I think his great-grandfather, his grandfather, himself, and his sons. And they preach a message similar to yours. And his latest book is called Sun, Steak, Steel, and Sleep. Um, and he's the first person who turned me on to this work, you know, a couple years back. And after I interviewed him, I talked to my coach and he said, have you heard of Sean Baker? I go, no, I've never heard of Sean Baker. Who's Sean Baker? He said, well, he wrote The Carnivore Diet. I said, that sounds like a great, great book. I got to buy it. So I bought it and I read your book. And I thought to myself, Tony was a pretty smart guy. You seem like you're a pretty smart guy. So let me move off of a 
primarily carb-based diet, which a lot of my diet was full of carbs. You know, I like to eat pasta and rice and dates and fruit and stuff like that. And let's let's go full carnivore. And Tony was talking about what he calls uh, his, his great reset, which is 30 days of eggs, meat, and cheese. You only eat eggs, meat, and cheese for 30 days. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. So I, I started to do that and I started to feel better. And then I hired a bodybuilder earlier this year. I was 55 years old, Sean, and I weighed 227. And I thought, I need to change uh, the way I look. This guy put me on a strong workout program and a primarily meat-based diet. And brother, I lost 58 pounds in six months. You know, I was fat wow. and now I'm fit. So there you go. What you say works. It's worked for me in a very personal way. And that was one of the reasons I was excited to ask you to come on my show. Yeah, I mean, and that's really, I mean, there's all sorts of thoughts on, you know, mechanistic reasons why something may or may not work. And and I don't really care. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's important, but I mean, ultimately I care if it works or not. And, and we talk about evidence-based. I, I really talk about results-based, you know, and I think that's really what we're all after. You know, we want results. You know, you can read all the papers till you're blue in the faith face and, and, and sort of maybe sort of conceptually grasp why something may or may not be helpful for you. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's either going to work or it isn't. And for the most part, you know, with, you know, with, with, you know, with exception, uh, it's been quite helpful for, for the vast majority of people that have, that have, you know, sincerely tried it. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, doing it for a couple of days and quitting. I'm saying, you know, sticking with it for a couple of months and most people, and, and, you know, I'd, Early on, I'd taken data on about 12,000 people doing this diet. And we saw that by, by about three months, the three-month point, most people start to, you know, turn the corner. That's the inflection point where most people that have certain health conditions seem to see uh, significant improvements by then. So anyway, that's, you know, kind of like try to try it and see if it's worth it. See if, see if, it's, see if it's for you. It may not be, but there's a good chance it might be. You know, um, the most important public intellectual of our time is Jordan Peterson, arguably, right? And he's been on a carnivore diet for at least two years, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And I think in- he's been on it about five years now. Five years so now. he's, okay. you know, because what happened was I went on Rogan and then his daughter saw me on there and she was in, in part inspired by my discussion. She did it for a period of time and then she got her dad to do it. So this, I think this all happened around 2017, 20, probably 2018 is probably when he started, I think, in earnest. So. Yeah, I mean, so he's been on it probably five years, and yeah, yeah, he's uh, obviously it's helped him clearly. I mean, he, he it's kind of interesting because he reluctantly would talk about it early on, right? He was like, I don't really want to talk about that stuff, uh, but now he is, you know, really more open to a full throated endorsement of what it's doing, and he sees because I think just like the rest of us, he sees the grave problem we have in society with, um, you know, mental health, physical health, and in much of it. In fact, probably the majority of it stems from our just awful diets. And so I think he's he's starting to see that, hey, we've got to, like I do, we've got to change the course of where we're headed because we're headed to a very bad place with just mental health. And, and it's, you know, when one in four Americans are on some sort of drug for their mental health, that's a scary proposition. You know, when one out of two Americans are now clinically obese, not just overweight, but obese, that's a real problem. Uh, you know, when, you know, <laughs> uh, people over 65 are on average of five different medications, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's just, where does it stop? I mean, where, where do you say enough's enough? And I, I, I think we're beyond that, you know, my point. Well, you're right about that, Sean. I mean, that, that's a whole different topic, but the pharmaceutical industry seems to have co-opted the political class to the point where uh, a lot of the public policy decisions these days are being made for the benefit of the pharmaceutical industry and to push more and more drugs on more and more people. The whole scamdemic, in my opinion, was something that was pushed to increase Pfizer and Moderna sales by tens of billions of dollars. And a whole lot of the drugs that folks are taking, I think, are intended to addict them so they keep taking drugs for the rest of their lives. These guys are the real drug cartels, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, if you look at like any chronic disease and can you name a drug that has reduced the incidence of that chronic disease? <laughs> There's none. They're just to support, I, you know, I really call it, you know, we went from, you know, the art of medicine to the, the business practice of disease management. And I really consider it disease maintenance because all we do is maintain these people in some level of sickness and 
medicate their symptoms at enormous profit. I mean, U.S. healthcare system, you know, probably close to five trillion now. A few years ago, it was four point three trillion dollars a year we spent on on healthcare. The majority of it, chronic disease. And in the United States, we get very little in return for it. I mean, you know, we have one of the sickest population. Well, we are the, we are the sickest population we've ever had in our country. We, our life expectancy is going down. Uh, there's no evidence that it's it's you know turning around. It's it's just awful. And and yeah, I mean, but the pharmaceutical companies are making hundreds of billions a year in profit. And yes, of course, there are politicians that are benefiting either directly or indirectly from that. So yeah, it's it's it, it is it's a it's a corporatocracy and, and the pharmaceutical industry sits very prominently at the head of that or at the very top of that. Absolutely. And um, here's uh, here's another thing that I, I, I think we all got to understand. If you look at photos of families back in the 1960s and 70s, you see people looking, you know, slim and trim. Uh, if you look at photos of people in the 2010s and the tw- and, and the 2020s, you see the average family is morbidly obese. It's crazy. Uh, why is that? Well, a big reason is because people changed their diet. They started. They stopped eating as much meat because meat was demonized. Oh no, it's going to give you uh, high cholesterol, and that's bad for you. That's a terrible thing. When did that actually become a thing that high cholesterol in and of itself was a bad thing? And secondly, they just keep pushing carbs down everybody's throats and processed foods. How can you say stay trim if you're eating things that are meant to make you fat? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think as far as the uh, demonization uh, of cholesterol, that probably goes back to at least to the 1950s. I mean, we first started looking at the, the impact of dietary cholesterol on heart disease back in the n- early part of the 20th century, 1910-ish or so, yeah. uh, when they did investigations on rabbits and whatnot. Uh, obviously, rabbits aren't, they're herbivores, they're not designed to eat cholesterol, but it, but nonetheless, that's where the early work came from. But really, with 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 the 1950s, with the uh, the heart attack of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, that was that, that sort of catapult. And we were going through a bit of a heart disease climate, you know, a crisis at the time, and so they were desperate to find causes for that. And then, of course, you know, we know the scientist Ansel Keys was instrumental in sort of pushing forward this so called lipid lipid heart hypothesis, which was very much a theory and, and was not really accepted by the vast majority of the, of the uh, scientific com- community. But it was sort of, you know, strong arm through through uh, basically some political stuff. I know that the sugar lobby really sort of did some shady stuff back in the '60s uh, to sort of, you know, put fat as 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 a boogeyman and, and sort of exonerate sugar to a degree. And so we've seen that. And then of course we have this entire nutrition science, um, uh, you know, industry basically that was you know, basically founded by religious vegetarians, the Seventh-day Adventists back in 1917 with the advent or with the uh, the uh, uh, formation of the American Dietetics Association, which was formed by, uh, you know, uh, Lena Cooper, uh, Seventh-day Adventist and her partner. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we've had this sort of demonization of red meat and cholesterol going on for quite some time now. And what you mentioned is absolutely true, that when you remove animal products from your diet, whether it's butter i.e., you know, you replace it with margarine or meat and they replace it with some sort of ultra-processed food. That is clearly 100% what happens. Um, that is that is the reality of what happens. When you reduce animal products, you consume more processed food. Great for the processed food company because it's enormously profitable for them. Great for the drug industry because it's enormously profitable for them. But, you know, this is what we see. And I think this is one of the major drivers of this push. It's not to save the planet due to climate change or any interest in protecting your health. It is clearly in in the name of profit uh, that they do this. It is in the name of profit and that's what makes it disgusting. And, you know, in the last few weeks, um, there've been a lot of people that are starting to stand up, prominent people, they're starting to stand up and give a big F you to the powers that be around some of the narratives they're pushing on us. I mean, you saw Elon Musk last week telling the the (laughs) folks that are leading an advertiser boycott to go F themselves. You saw Dana right, White. Yeah. So, so Dana Dana White doing the same thing. Yeah, we're Dana seeing a lot White. of f bombs being dropped, right? And, and, and I think, sorry, go ahead. I think many of us feel the same way, right? I mean, that, that's what we all want to say to these people because we are tired of it. And I think it's you know, they, you know, obviously they're all multi multi millionaires, billionaires, you know, in in, in Musk's case, almost a trillionaire type of thing. So, 
you know, it's it's a little easier for those guys to do it, but they also have a lot to risk, and, and I applaud them for for finally staying. And I think it, like when I went on Rogan, I told Joe, hey, look, I really appreciate and thank you for what you're doing by giving the common man a voice and letting, you know, and not being coward because so many people in the media, so many celebrities cower down to this stuff. We see it all the time. You say, what was the, uh, John Cena, John, John Cena. Cena. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, John Cena going there groveling because he, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's pathetic quite honestly. It is pathetic. Um, but what happens when you see guys like Rogan, uh, guys like Dana White, guys like Tucker Carlson, there was a little clip that Patrick bet David put on Instagram of, uh, Dana White, um, Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson dropping F-bombs to the powers that be. And what happens when people with that level of prominence doing that, when they start to do that, the average person who's feeling a little nervous, feeling a little scared, but also sick and tired of all the crap that's being shoved down his throat, he starts to feel a little bit more courageous and he's going to start to stand up. In Canada, Sean, uh, three, four months ago, the media started – pushing the narrative of, oh, there's another COVID pandemic coming here. And I'm telling you what, people who last time were, okay, we'll follow what you say. We trust you in the government. They started to stand up and say, F that, no freaking way. You're not going to tell us to lock down. You're not going to keep our kids at home. And the whole narrative died down within three weeks because the powers that be could see that if they started this, there was going to be an insurrection on their hands. And one of the reasons I think they're pushing people not to eat meat is because when you eat meat, it raises your testosterone. You're naturally a little bit more aggressive. You're naturally a little bit more don't tread on me in your attitude toward life. So when you take meat out of people's diet, their testosterone goes down. They become meeker. They become milder. So I think it's good for you to eat meat as a, as a way to say F you to the man too. What do you think of that? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> it's an interesting co- topic and whether it raises testosterone relative to something else is debatable. But I would say that, yeah, I mean, I think that um, it is, you know, when I when I wrote my book, I talked about that in, in the prologue of the book or the epilogue, rather, uh, that this is this is considered a revolutionary act these days. And it's almost like the Boston Tea Party where we're just saying, I'm going to do this and, and, you know, you know, stick it to the to the guys that are telling me I can't. And uh, but I mean, honestly, you know, when you think about like countries that have internal strife or people where they actually overthrow the government, not that I'm calling for that, but not at all. You know, it's usually a hungry population, a population that is, um, uh, you know, just so frustrated. And what we have right now is a pacified population. You know, these people are just, they're so apathetic and lazy and they've been fed junk food and fed junk media. So all they want to do is be, is sit there in front of their TV and eat, eat their, eat their cookies and ice cream. And uh, as long as it's cheap uh, and, and have somebody take care of them. And I think you've got a large population segment of the population that falls in that category where they're just so damn complacent and so lazy they're just too tired to do anything. And and when you fix your diet and you get healthy, you're like, wait a minute, this is BS. List, I'm very independent to this at this point. I think we can do things better. And they, they don't want people questioning what they're doing, I think. No, they definitely don't. Uh, and what you're saying is 100% true. If you go read George Orwell's book, 1984, in it, he talks about how the modus operandi of the regime at the time was to feed people like Pabnum to keep them kind of sedated and have them looking at screens all day so they don't notice what's going on around them. And once you know it, 1984 is happening now in 2023 because everybody's got these tiny little screens that they stare at for six, seven, eight hours a day. And they're eating food that prevents them from thinking clearly. I also think sleeping is an important part of the issue as well. If you're on your screen for two, three, four hours before you go to bed, it's going to be hard for you to sleep properly because that blue light's making your brainwaves go crazy. So you get up feeling tired. And when I'm feeling tired, I don't know about you, Sean, but I don't think as clearly as when I'm well rested. So people need to eat better. They need to put their devices down and they need to stop listening to what people have to say to them from the powers that be. Because if you outsource your thinking, you're done, you're toast. You're never going to live a life that you're going to be happy with. I think the most important thing we can do is think for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with the device. I try to make this point on Rogan's podcast, not as good as I would like to, but I mean, like I said, when I grew up, I don't know how old you are, Nikki, but I'm, you 56. know, I'm 50, 
Yeah, I'm 56 too. So we grew up at the same go. time. When I was a kid, everybody watched the same thing. I mean, there was just a few TV stations. You kind of watch the same thing. You're exposed to the same thing. And so, you know, the message was what the message was. But now it has become highly contoured. And I mean, it's like, you know, just by looking at your devices, they 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 basically control what they want you to think more or less because of what they show you. And, you you're, you know, if you react to something, they, they play upon that and they just keep showing you more and more of this stuff. And so it ends up dividing people and you get these people that are so divided now, uh, ideologically or politically or whatever, whatever, dietarily. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, it's one of those united, we stand divided, we fall type of situations. So we have a very divided populace. We have a very complacent populace that can't really do anything. And, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's tough. It's it's because there's so much inertia there to to you know to I mean you fight amongst yourselves online, you snipe at each other online. That's where your energy goes. When really something more constructive be done with with actually changing policy, actually uh, having a government that actually works for us and and, and and as opposed to perhaps against us in many ways. So yeah, it's 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 frustrating. There's no question about it, um, but. I think the message that meat is good for you is one that a lot of people will instinctively gravitate toward. So I'm really glad that you're, you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, in the book, you have tons of case studies of people that have, have gone on a carnivore diet, and what it's done for them. And what I love to see about that is that in particular, there seem to be a lot of women that are embracing eating the carnivore way, because in the past they weren't. My lady is a three-time Guinness world record holder. She set three world records for running 12 hours on a treadmill. She was vegan for many years. As soon as I finished reading the carnivore diet, I said, honey, you got to start eating beef. I'm telling you, this is going to change your life. Blah, 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 blah. And she was super skeptical at first, but she's eating beef now, man. She's eating hamburgers a few times a week. So I think that's a beautiful thing. It's great to see women embracing this. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that there was a friend of mine who is a 400-meter uh, world champion, Masters athlete, who is wow. very pro-carnivore. She took a gal who was a, a, a world champion plant-based runner. Uh, I think, I can't remember the distance she was competing. I think maybe 800 meters or something like that. And she got her eating beef, and now she's just blowing away her own records. I mean, she's gotten so much better as an athlete by doing that. And so it's, you know, I like I said, I am all for dietary freedom. If you want to be vegan or plant-based, knock yourself, go for it. If it worked for you, it worked for you. What I don't like is people mandating what I can eat and, and because it doesn't work for a lot of other people and it certainly wouldn't work for me. Uh, but you know, some of these people that despite you know, a, a diet that's probably a little bit deficient are able to achieve pretty good things shows you how resilient humans are and how tough people are. But when you, you know, when you start feeding them appropriately, gosh, they just get so much better. It's really amazing to see. So Sean, um, let's come to that point of the folks that are trying to tell us what we can and can't eat. These are the people that, um, let's face it, are socialists or totalitarians. They want to take away all freedom of choice. And lately around the world, I've been heartened to see a massive backlash against that sort of thinking. I mean, in Argentina, you had the first libertarian candidate be elected president. And there's a rumor that Argentinian beef makes the best steak in the world. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I've heard from a lot of people. I got to fly down there and actually check it out for myself. But Javier Mille, he said that we all need to stand up against these people. He calls them those little socialist rhymes with hits. And he says, you can't give them an inch. You can't give them even one inch. And I think those of us that are uh, meatarians, that are practitioners of carnivore diets, we can't give these people an inch because they're going to try to use every argument in the book. Oh, it's better for the planet. Oh, it's it's inhumane to kill animals to eat them. Oh, it's you fill in the blank. If we give them even one inch, if we concede the argument to them even one bit, they're going to take a mile and they're going to, they're going to have us eating bugs and inside of 10 years. We can't let that happen, not even for one second. Yeah, I agree with that, not getting, taking an inch. And we've already given up many inches. I think we need to go back the other way. I think we need Agreed. to start eating more meat and producing more meat. And, you know, of course, we can do it in a way that's as sustainable as possible. And I think there's more work to be done in that area. But you're absolutely right. I don't concede anything, you know, because this is what they have. They, you know, you see this, they, they propose absolutely preposterous stuff that like, no, no one's going to, then they, then they, what, what they're really looking for is some sort of compromise. And they're very smart about this. It's not, they're not, they're never going to come out there and say, you are not allowed to eat meat, right? But what they're going to do is make it so difficult for the ranchers to 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 uh, sustain a livelihood, 
uh, maybe maybe make it extremely expensive so most people can't afford it. That is the play that that's going to actually have you know efficacy. If they came out and said we're going to ban meat, you know you're going to get uprising. But if you just slowly, it's like you know slowly boiling the frogs. You know it's like yeah. well, you know it's going to go from you know ten dollars a uh, you know a pound or you know twenty dollars a kilo to now twenty three dollars a kilo or and on and on and on. And then more ranchers go out of business because they can't sustain uh, the, the 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 increased regulatory stuff that that is put upon them. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you know, we have to watch this. So I think you have to say, look, we need to look at how much meat is being produced every year and try to increase that in my view, you know, particularly beef. I think beef is such a wonderful, uh, you know, Canadian beef is wonderful. You know, you got the whole great, you know, Alberta and, and, and uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, that all places that can produce tons of meat. Uh, not that there's other places that can't, but I mean, um, you, you need to preserve that. And I know, I say, I know some of the Albertans have pushed back against what's going on in Ottawa and, you know, they're kind of like, time. you know, it's good to see. And, and, and our ranchers need, need support more than ever, you know, in the United States, you know, a lot of people were up and up in arms about what was going on in the Netherlands, you know, and you saw the elections yeah. in the Netherlands where they really pushed back and they, you know, they, they, they installed a, uh, or elected a, uh, freedom, pro freedom, pro farmer, uh, a government in there, because they, they had the audacity to think they were going to shut down 3,000 farms in the Netherlands. Well, in the United States over the last 40, 50 years, we've lost 500,000 ranchers in the United what? States, which, I mean, most people don't realize that. Half a million ranchers have gone out of business. In the 1970s, we had something like 1.3 million ranches in the United States. We're down to 700,000 now. So it's been, uh, it, it's a real problem. And, and uh, you know, like I said, we need to, again, <laughs> stop paver, paving over, you know, agricultural land with uh you know malls and strip malls and business zones you know you, we need that i mean this is what feeds us i mean literally if we can't get good nutrition and i don't believe for a second that we can make this you know everything grown in a factory is good nutrition i, I just I, I reject that premises and I, I don't think that's uh you know i mean yeah we can survive maybe but very sick very weak very diminished you know and i don't i don't want to see uh you know i've got you know, children at home, and I don't want to see their futures being compromised in that way. So it's up to us to fight for it, you know. We do, you know, the great Irish uh, philosopher Edmund Burke said, the only condition necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Hell no, not this good man, and definitely not you, and definitely not millions and millions of us. We got to stand up. We got to eat more meat ourselves. We got to push back against the forces that are trying to take this away from us. And the climate alarmists are pure evil. They're pure evil and we need to stop them. I'm not saying that we should do things to harm our planet or our environment. Not at all. Don't get me wrong. But those people that are using that as an excuse to take away our freedoms, they don't care about our planet. They care about having control over you. Don't allow that to happen. Good men and women fought, bled, and died. So we have the freedoms that we have today. We need to maintain them. One thousand percent. Yeah, um, you know it's it's uh, <laughs> you know you mentioned about you know one of the arguments is a climate argument, which I think is you know again bogus in regard to you know animal agriculture driving any of that or any significant amount of that. I think it's complete nonsense. And then the argument about animal welfare type stuff, and and you know it's it's clear that if you're going to eat any food, it doesn't matter what it is you are going to do that at the expense of animals dying. I mean, there's no way around that. In fact, many, many diets, uh, omnivorous or plant-based diets cause greater uh, loss of life and loss of biodiversity than you would if you were to focus your diet on a, you know, a grazing animal, particularly one that's raised in a regenerative fashion. That's, that's going to have the least impact on uh, animal suffering and animal and, and the best animal welfare overall. But, uh, you know, people just sort of turn a blind, blind eye to that because it's, it's convenient for them and they, think they can, you know, they can, they can have this guilt-free meal if I just don't eat meat, but that's, there's nothing farther from the truth than that. It's interesting. You mentioned a regenerative raised, uh, animal. Would you mind getting into that more? Cause I had a regenerative farmer on my show just about a month or so ago. And I, he's the fellow who even introduced the term to me. Would you mind explaining what that is for folks? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we look at how animals usually interact in the wild, I mean, there's a very, uh, specific way that, you know, animals have co-evolved with their environment. You know, we have these large grazing ruminant animals, you know, you can go look at the, like the savannas of Africa, for instance, where you have these giant, enormous herds of wildebeest 
and you know predators and the predators are there and it causes animals to move and so they're constantly on the move they're constantly eating some of the some of the forage some of the grass and then they're pooping all over the place putting down fertilizer and then they move on and then that that allows you know the rest of the ecosystem to evolve whereas our food system is basically uh you know in a way very destructive because you know with with plant agriculture we we you know you know the vast majority of our food comes from these monocrops where we just basically go in there and completely poison the landscape kill every living creature that lives there so that one one species one particular plant whether it be uh, you know, you know, rapes, you know, canola or, or soybean or corn or wheat or strawberries or tomato. It doesn't matter. I mean, we just kill everything else. So that's the only thing that grows there. So we have a tremendous loss of ecosystem. Uh, diversity is completely gone. The insects die in the United States. We kill literally uh, every year on with pesticide use. It's estimated we kill something like four quadrillion, not a billion, not a trillion, but quadrillion insects every year, which Wow. You think, well, they're, they're just a bunch of insects, but these ins- insects are also important for our ecosystem because that feeds the birds, which, you know, and, and you know, it's just in the, and you know, the bees are being killed. And so it all has a, an upstream effect. Uh, so a regenerative system, uh, you know, the goal is to, to sort of recreate what nature does. So instead of the predator moving the animals around, the farmer does, he just takes his, he takes his animals and he lets them graze in a pasture for a day and then he moves them onto the next pasture. And that has a tremendous impact in you know restoring that biodiversity there so when you look at a field that has been grazed regeneratively it's full of life there's bees there's birds there's insects there's you know beetles and worms and diverse micro micro microbes that are allowing for the root system to develop and the water retention the water retention is better so you don't have all the, the runoff that you see in these places that are overgrazed even a grass finished uh system where the cows are just let out to roam on their own can be relatively destructive because the cows will naturally just eat this eat down to the dirt and you don't want that to happen so you have to move these animals and so without the predators there the cows don't want to move because you know they just like eating the stuff they enjoy and they'll eat they'll eat the good stuff all the way to the dirt uh you know they won't graze anything else but if you move them continuously then they're they're not doing that and so it's it's it, you know it, they don't have to use any pesticides they don't have to use any herbicides and so those are other things that you know that ends up in our food system it ends up in our water supply so a regeneratively raised uh, uh, food system is clearly better for human health, clearly better for the environment. It's clearly and can be a very good way to uh, increase the uh, the stocking rate of the productivity of land. You know, you see people that take uh, land that can maybe support, a, you know, may, you know, may, maybe their hundred acres can only support, you know, twenty head of cattle. Uh, they re- they regenerate it for a few years, and now they can support you know, a hundred head of cattle. So the productivity of the land goes up, you know, three, four, five fold in many cases. And then on top of that, they can also do multi-species grazing where they not only run the cows through there, then they follow it with the chickens and then they follow it with, uh, you know, with the sheep and the pigs and things like that. So it's, um, it, it's a way in which we can produce, you know, probably just as much, if not more food potentially in a way that's works symbiotically with, with nature and the landscape and how we should probably be doing, we should subsidize that quite honestly, because right now, you know, the USDA, and I don't know what, you know, the Canadian equivalent, but the USDA, just like the FDA, is subject to corporate capture. It's subject to conflict of interest. People that work for the USDA, where do they go when they leave the USDA? Well, they get a, a golden parachute executive job at one of these giant food companies, one of these giant PepsiCo and Nabisco and Nestle. So, again, it's all set up to promote those types of food. And where do those foods come from? Again, it's this industrial monocrop system. It's, it's the equivalent of printing you know, fiat food. I mean, you can just crank out all this cheap food, cheap calories uh, at enormous profit. And, you know, that's, you know, it makes the shareholders happy, but it makes the rest of society sick. That is um, disgusting. Uh, One of my friends, a former client of mine, was talking about microplastics and how those are now omnipresent throughout so much of the food supply. Is that something you've run across in uh, the work and research that you do? Well, I mean, there certainly is some level of microplastic. I haven't, I have not greatly looked into that, but I mean, it has to do with the fact that our oceans are filled with plastic. I mean, this is more of this, you know, we've got plastic everywhere in the environment. So it ends up in our food supply and ends up, you know, you you do blood samples on people and yeah, you'll find microplastics in them. Um, You know, back to my initial point, but you said it's disgusting. But I mean, I think what most people need to realize is that um, 
I mean, you can do something about this. You vote every time you go to the store and buy something. And so if you're disgusted by that, you need to just stop supporting these companies because every dollar you give to one of these companies gives them more power over you. You know, and it's as it's, it's simple as that. I mean, if you don't like what they're doing to you, stop supporting them financially. And I mean, you can make better choices. I mean, it's clear, but you got to, one of the problems is so many people are addicted to this stuff. These foods are designed to addict us just like drugs addict us. And approximately 14% of the population is identified as having food addictions. And probably it's probably a greater percentage, quite honestly. Um, and so, you know, how do you give up food addiction? Well, you've got to go cold turkey just like you wouldn't. You wouldn't tell an alcoholic, you know, have a, just have a couple shots a week. That's not how they're going to get over that. No. So you've got to go cold turkey, cut all that stuff out. And that's why a carnivore diet has been so incredibly effective with people suffering from food addiction but i mean honestly if you want to change this system we've got to give take away power from the people that are doing these things in, in a sort of you know kind of very malevolent way and support the people that i that, that you want to support and it's as simple as that so if somebody wants to embrace the carnivore way of life sean walk them through how they can get started with this especially somebody who has never done it before, but they're sick and tired of being sick. Maybe they're looking, it's the end of 2023. They want to start a new leaf in 2024. That was me last year at this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, con conveniently every year on January, I do world carnivore month where I try to convince people for the month of January, 31 days, just go carnivore. And we've had, you know, gosh, you know, Rogan's doing it again this year. And We've had tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people have joined us every year, and most of them find that their health has gotten significantly better. But, you know, of course, I wrote a book on the on the topic, which kind of is, you know, very detailed on, on, on what might be might be helpful. But I mean, the, the short answer is, um, you know, I think there's a couple things that you have to do. I mean, obviously, you're eating animal products. You got to find something you enjoy, you know. If you, you know, I mean, there's, I, you see some, it's kind of crazy and silly when I see people doing this. You see some people advertising a carnivore diet is you got to eat all this raw liver and raw testicles and all this craziness. And it's just totally disgusting. No one needs to do that. That's all for media clicks and selling supplements and absolute nonsense. Um, you know, find something you like that's, you know, animal based, you know, hopefully, hopefully you've got some red meat in there. I mean, I think that's really a very important part of this, whether it's beef or lamb, ground beef or steak, if you can afford it. Um, you might want to add some eggs to that. Um, dairy products are something you can use sparingly. You know, some people do okay with it. Some people have to restrict that. But just get used to the idea of filling your plate with lots and lots of meat and animal products and eliminating, start eliminating the fruits and the vegetables and the grains and the breads and the starches and the rices and the pastas and things like that and the cereals. And you'll be surprised that, you know, the way I started, I just had steak and eggs for breakfast for one meal, which is not an unusual breakfast. I mean, people eat that. But, but I found out that, you know, if I ate enough of that, I just didn't want to eat anything else. And so I tell people, you know, because they're like, well, how much do I need to eat? And, you know, I weigh this much. And, you know, I, don't worry about that in the beginning. Just I tell people, eat enough, you know, meat and animal products so that you don't want anything else. So you don't want cupcakes or pizza or cookies or anything like that. Just eat enough. And you might have to eat quite a bit. You do that for the month. Um, make sure you stay on top of your hydration because anytime you go on a low-carb diet, you, there's some level of uh, loss of fluid and electrolytes because your insulin levels typically come down. And when our insulin levels fall, we tend not to retain as much salt and water. So you might have to replace that a little bit so you don't get headaches and you know things like that. Um, you know, Realize that your bowel, bowel habits will change a little bit because you go from... Uh, you know, it's it's weird. You know, you buy all these expensive organic fruits and vegetables. Most of it your body can't absorb. Most of it ends up in the toilet. You know, you go to the bathroom, you know, you eat all this fruits and vegetables. You have three or four bowel movements a day in many cases. Um, on carnivore, it's very different because everything you consume gets absorbed like we're designed to. I mean, this is what we're just literally designed to consume meat. And so you may go from having a bowel movement two or three times a day to having a bowel movement once every two or three days initially. You know, and it's something that... Uh, there's a transition period. And so those are th some things to be be mindful of. Um, there are all kinds of online groups now that you can join that are doing carnivore challenges all the time. I have a, I have another website called carnivore.diet. I'm there every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, unless I'm on a plane or something like that, you know, talking to, to our group and trying to give them support because it's helpful to have a supportive environment, you know, just for motivation, for accountability, and then for questions that might come up. Because, you know, some people have, well, what about this? What about this? This happened to me. And there's, yeah. I mean, there are things that happen during the transition that sometimes people need need more of a clue. 
on what's going on, you know. And so uh, I will say that if you are particularly sick, you know, if you've got a lot of health issues, you're on a lot of medications, it probably makes sense to realize that you may have to come off of some of those medications. You know, if you're a diabetic, your blood glucose may start to drop pretty dramatically. So you need to, you might need to cut back on some of those medications. So you need to do that under the, under the supervision of a healthcare provider, of course. Yeah. But, you know, those are some, some things to just keep in mind. And uh, like I said, it's uh, uh, fortunately more and more physicians are starting to uh, sort of embrace this. You know, I went from you know, me being the crazy guy, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, talking about this to now there are literally thousands of physicians out there that um, are sort of, you know, on board with this, at least to some degree for some conditions. Uh, again, our company, Rivero, has all of our physicians get it. And we use carnivore as a as a treatment option when, when needed, not always, but when needed. I think it's a, a great tool. Yeah, there's a whole lot of other Docs that are jumping on the bandwagon these days. Um, Tony Martin's a fellow who's been doing this for a long time here in Canada. I don't know if you know Tony, but you and Tony should. I don't know. I don't recall the name. Yeah, unfortunately. If you'd like, I'll make an introduction. He's got a podcast as well, and he talks about these issues. He's always pushing the reset and eggs, meat, and cheese, and sun, steak, and steel, and sleep, and all that stuff. He's an older fellow. He's in his uh, late 70s, but his son is running. The clinic they've been saying this since 1911 man so these guys are they've been on your side for a long long time northern ontario god bless them out in the nickel belt <laughs> uh good guy though really really good guy um and um i think what you're doing is amazing i think it's great uh more and more people need the message so i'm glad you came on the show so bef- before we sign off uh, sean Let's talk about some great steak dishes because I'm a big fan of steak. I'm a big fan of eating this way, and uh, I'd love to. I'd love to banter with you a little bit on this if you don't mind. Um, so I've become a real fan of cooking on cast iron. So I bought myself a bunch of large cast iron skillets, and what I do is I use beef tallow to kind of grease the skillet a little bit, and then I'll toss on a steak. My favorite two types of steak to eat are a nice juicy ribeye. Uh, or a strip loin steak. It's hard to cook a big tomahawk on these cast iron puppies. I'm going to need a, a barbecue for that. But uh, that's kind of some of my favorite ways uh, of making the meat. It's very satisfying to to cook it the old-fashioned way, and I think it tastes better too. Um, what's yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, a couple. Of, well, I mean, I, I, you know, honestly, a ribeye steak is probably my favorite, just because you know you can't beat that fat, that the, the combination of fat and flavor, and just uh, it's just wonderful. And I also like those New York strips. I had actually I had three New York strips for breakfast this morning. Quite nice, nice. Um, you know, one of the things with the cast iron and ca- cast irons are great. I mean, you get them, but you got to get them as you know, you got to get them super, super stinking hot. You know, yep. and then that tallow is pretty good because it, it can tolerate that high heat. It's a good cooking fat. Um, one of the things that, you know, I find a lot of success when I do do cast iron, I, I do from time to time. The problem is it, it kind of messes up the kitchen and, you know, and I, I get, the wife is like, ah, the kitchen. So I, I'm usually out on the patio cooking on the barbecue. But, uh, the other thing is, you know, having even pressure on there. So high heat and I, I like to use a little steak weight. So I'll put a little weight on there to weight it down. So, so you okay. get that full sear contact that sure. improves uh, the sear in my view. And then, um, you know, some people like to do, you know, finish, finish off with a little butter based, you know, that's plus or minus if you like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, and then of course, uh, there's the reverse sear technique where, you know, you prior to searing, you kind of bring it maybe in the, in the oven at a low temperature up to, you know, internal of, you know, maybe 10 degrees below what you want it to. So if you like it at 130 Fahrenheit, um, I can't remember the equivalent for Celsius for you guys, but 130 Fahrenheit, you know, medium rare, medium rare, you cook it just underneath that in the oven. Uh, and then you put it in there for that quick, quick sear, you know, the quicker you can get it hot and seared, the better, you know, the more juice stays in there and, and it's just such a wonderful, and the ribeye is a great one to cook because, you know, that fat on the, the fat just renders out so nice on a ribeye. It's such a nice, even, even flavor. And yeah, I mean, I agree. Cast iron can be a wonderful way. I personally, just because, um, one, I, I don't like cleaning the kitchen as much. So I often will just, I've got a sous vide device. So I'll throw it in the sous vide. Oh, those are great then, too. And yeah, and then I'll, I'll just, you know, it's ready for me whenever I want it. And, and then, uh, uh, and then I throw it, then I've got a grill that goes up to 1,500 degrees outside. So I throw that sucker Damn. in there and it's super, super nice here, super fast. So, 
that's how I do mine typically. I'll do, you know, I, I'll smoke some meats, I'll smoke briskets and smoke some tri-tips and things like that. Those are fun. And, uh, yeah, brisket. yeah but it's, uh, it's, there's, you know, I mean, I, I do think it's important for any man or woman to understand and know how to cook a good steak. That is an essential survival skill. I agree. And because, you know, when I grew up as a kid, you know, my mom, I think, I don't think my mom could cook. <laughs> that was not her forte. She was a tiny, tiny, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'5", 260 pounds right now. She was a tiny little woman and thought food was a waste of money. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, mom. <laughs> I disagree with that uh, pretty, pretty uh, vehemently. And so, um, you know, if you, if, you know, if you, you know, you, you bring your kids up eating chewy, dried out, overcooked steaks, that's a problem. You're doing them a disservice. Teach them how to eat a nice, well-cooked, medium rare uh, you know, just delicious. And, you know, a good steak, good cut of meat with with, with a good cook uh, doesn't need much. I mean, I, just a little salt's all I need. Maybe some people want salt and pepper, but a good meat should not require all kinds of salt. Because when you overcook meat and you dry it out, then you got to put all those sweet, you know, and, and all these sauces on there to kind of make up for your mistake. Cook the meat properly to, from, the, from the beginning, and, and it's so much easier. It tastes so much better, too. I wholeheartedly agree. I have a 17-year-old son, Sean, and I got a 15-year-old. My 17-year-old is steak happy, steak crazy. He loves eating the stuff. I've taught him how to cook with the cast iron. So I, I'm I'm one of these uh, dudes who just has to get everything right and perfect when I decide to take something on. So I cook with the cast iron. I clean it properly. I don't use soap on it. Uh, I basically uh, grease it with... Um, with some avocado oil afterward right now. I'm trying to figure out if, if, it, if we can find a way to grease it with the tallow. Uh, we probably could, you know, but uh, the guys at, uh, at large say use something like avocado oil, but maybe I'll start using tallow now that I think about it. I think tallow works fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's, all you're doing is putting a coat of oil in there. I mean, it's yeah. whatever. Tallow's fine. It's, it, it's, it's, it's very stable. Um, I see no reason why you can't. And I've done that with mine. I usually either, you know I, I usually do that with mine. So sold. I'm going to start using tallow. That's it. That that that'll be it. There we'll get go. rid of the avocado oil. So I put it all away, and it it just is gleaming every time. I've got a, a an eight and a half inch, an eleven inch, and a seventeen inch. I take the seventeen inch out outdoors with a bunch of kids. My my son's soccer team. We've taken them outside. We cook a bunch of meat for them, and we eat it. It's a fantastic way to eat. I love cleaning the stuff. I find it very soothing. My lady's not crazy about the smell, so after I cook, winter or summer, it doesn't matter. The windows come open. The fans start going to push all that smell out of the house. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. But uh, I'll tell you what. It's it's the greatest thing in the world for me, and I, I'm going to try the cooking in the oven. I haven't done that, but I think that, that should be a, a, a neat thing to try. Just cook it to Yeah, just get a meat thermometer. Right? Just get a little meat thermometer and, you know, yeah. r- run it up to whatever, about 10 degrees less than you want it, you know, so, so when you sear it, it doesn't it'll, it'll cook a little more. Here's another one, a fun one to do. There's like, sure. I'll take a standing rib roast, you know, like a five pound prime rib. Yeah. Um, and you do that for like Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. And you throw it in the oven um, at 500 degrees Fahrenheit for five minutes per pound. So if it's a five pound steak, you put it in and you'll have to convert it to kilos and all that stuff. Yeah, but a yeah, five yeah. pound steak, you put it in for 25 minutes, five times five. And then, and then once you, once you finish that, you just turn the oven off completely. I even go shut the circuit breaker off so the fan doesn't even run. So it just sits there and you leave it in there for two hours and that's it. I mean, then you got a perfectly, uh, you know, prior to that, I co- I coat it in salt. So I'll take a nice coarse, like a kosher salt, cover that thing up in a coarse kosher salt, five minutes uh, times 500 degrees per pound. So 25 minutes for a five pound steak, you know, and then turn off the oven for two hours and bring it out and then you know, let it rest for a minute or two and then sh- slice in and it's beautiful super simple super easy way to do no no brainer I'm i gotta do is remember to you know remember to remember your timer i'm in so what are your thoughts on how to cook tomahawk indoors because i haven't been able to do a tomahawk and do a good job with that sucker indoors what's the best way to cook one of those puppies um, well i mean yeah i mean that you could do it in the broiler in the oven um depending on how how good of an oven you have um, I, you know, honestly, I get a lot of tomahawks sent to me. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, because I've become such a beef advocate, I get ranchers literally sending me 
their stakes. And a lot of times oh, they'll send me a big old tomahawk. And the bone is like, you know, 12 inches long on the end there. Yeah. And it won't fit in my pans. It won't fit in my grills. And so I just go in the garage with it with a saw and saw the bone <laughs> sometimes. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like it's still, you still got all the meat, but I just make it, I make it fit. So, I mean, you know, you do what you got to do sometimes, you, you know, yeah. I mean, the bone is cool and all, and it's fun. It's, it makes a fun picture. But I mean, I, but I mean, honestly, I cook most of them outdoors, so it's, I don't run into that issue. But if, you know, like that 17 inch pan, um, you probably can get most of the comp tomahawk in there and you just have the bone kind of hanging off the end, yeah. um, you know, which you don't really care if the bone is all the way cooked on the, on the end, you just kind of use no. it as a handle anyway. So you might be yeah. able to get away with it in a big enough pan. All right. I'll give that a shot. I'll give that a shot. Well, Sean, I got to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, if, uh, folks want to buy your book, we're, we're just going to send them to Amazon. I guess that's the best place. Go to Amazon. Yeah, I mean, that's you can get it. Yeah, yeah. The carnivore diet. Give Bezos, give Bezos some money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So there's a new um, there's a new uh, company called Public Square, and they're uh, supporting all the non woke pro freedom companies out there, and they're selling some books. I'm I'm looking at putting some of our books over there as well. Um, we wrote a book myself and uh, my buddy Wayne Allen Root. I don't know if you know Wayne Allen Root. They call him the uh, the Trump of Las Vegas. So we wrote this book. It's uh, called The Great Patriot Bicot Book. It's a list of non-woke companies to support. Got Donald Trump's attention. He posted about it on Truth Social. I thought that was kind of cool. And then we'd written The Great Patriot Boycott Book, which was all those companies that you were talking about that are crazy and trying to mess us up. So these are the ones not to buy from. So we're, we're really big fans of making sure the right kind of companies get our support. These ranchers yeah. that send you uh, beef, you know, if you send me a couple of their names, we'll include them in the show notes, but tell me a bit more about your, your various websites, how people can find out about them, buy your services, join your groups. Let's make sure we get all that sure. in there too. Yeah. I mean, the one I'm most excited about is obviously Rivero.com, but that's limited to the U S. So I don't know if your audience is, you know, U.S. Only, Mostly or American, Canadian. believe it or not, even though I'm Canadian, okay. 70% of yeah. my listeners are in America. I'm the most American Canadian okay. you're ever going to meet, brother. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And I, you know, I honestly, sometimes I, I felt, I felt really sorry for Canada going through COVID. I mean, I was like, my gosh, it was so like, it was like a communist country in my view. Well, but, we had our, we had our truckers and they stood up tall and strong. And I, no, I saw that, you know, and and I think, you know, I think they did a good job and they probably were instrumental in, in some, of, some of the events that happened. So, you know, even Every though they were, even though Trudeau was claiming victory, but it was a hollow victory, I think. I think they actually did more. I think they did what they wanted to do. They did. Um, but yeah, I mean, so Rivero.com, all 50 states in the United States were licensed. So if you need a doctor that is, you know, low-carb, keto-carnivore friendly, that's not going to just want to push drugs on you and, and, and really work with you, that's where you can go. We just, uh, we you know, <laughs> on Rogan, we got another couple thousand people signed up for it. So we're, wow. we got a lot of patients coming in, which is great. That's great. So hopefully we'll be very successful and, and expand this out to to, to Amen, level brother. I think it needs to go. Um, there's another there's another website called carnivore.diet. This is for people doing carnivore that want to jump on and just, you know, meet other people and I'm there every day. And then um, I've got some social media. Obviously, I'm on uh uh, what is it? Instagram at Sean S H A W N Baker B A K E R one nine six seven. I'm on uh, what was formerly Twitter is now X at S Baker M D. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel. You know, I know still, even though I got suspended like five or six times <laughs> <or depending. laughs> So that's Sean Baker M D. Uh, and then I I do have a Rumble account, Sean Baker MD, but I don't, I don't post as much there. I just had a hard time uploading that that platform. It just would not. It was just so slow, partly because I'm on Starlink and I don't have a good signal, so it makes it hard for me to upload some stuff. Um, I don't have a true social account, but I, I'm a, I know I did Rumble and I did – what was the other one for a while? Um, anyway, I'm, Gab. I think I was on Gab for a little bit. Yeah, but I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm mostly on the other ones we mentioned um and yeah that's that's you, you know that's uh, where to find me so and I, of course uh um i'm gonna be spreading the word pretty hard this year i mean i'm, I'm excited because i'm you know i was on rogan complaining about lack of funding and research on on our diet uh particularly from the beef, beef industry which stands i think to benefit significantly from it and now i've had i cannot tell you how many people have reached out to me like hey let's talk about this let's see if we can find some studies for you so i'm, I'm excited about you know, you know, getting, because I think there needs to be some science on this stuff, some more science rather, because there, there have been a few studies, but then we need more. Um, 
I, I'm going to connect you with Tony Martin. I think Tony's a good guy, and he is really dialed into all kinds of studies. That's his kind of thing. He's citing them all the time on his podcast, and he's a good fellow, and you should go on his show if he'll bring people on. I think it's usually him talking about stuff, but he's a good guy. You should get connected. I'd like to connect you with my buddy Wayne Allen Root. He's got a TV show on uh, the Real America's Voice TV. Uh, it's called Wayne Allen Root's America's Top Ten. He's got the distinction of being the journalist that's interviewed Donald Trump more than any other journalist 13 times on his show. And he brings people uh, like you on. So if you'd like to go on a show, he's got a pretty good sure. audience. Yeah. I'll connect you with his producer, Andrew Paul, who's a friend of mine. Brother, I really appreciate the time you spent with me. God bless you. Um, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, please come back anytime. Please keep doing what you're doing. And I want to tell you this very sincerely. I said this to all my Jewish friends after they were attacked by Hamas in Israel, because one of them posted online, your Jewish friends are not okay. And I called him and I said, how are you, man? And he said, I'm good. I'm good. I said, no, really, man. I saw what you posted online. How are you? And then he told me the truth. And I said, look, I'm here if you need me for anything. And then what he said he wanted was he wanted to be introduced to some podcasters and journalists. And I know a lot of those guys. So I did that. And I'm telling you this, Sean, we just met each other. We've only spent an hour together, but I consider you a fellow warrior and a fellow brother in spreading the cause of freedom. Anything you need, anyone you want to be introduced to, if you're pissed off at somebody one day and you want to just scream and yell at somebody who's going to listen, <laughs> I'm happy to do that. I do. I run a men's group. I do that for the men. I'm one of your brothers right now, man. So rock and roll. Thank you very much for well, being I appreciate. I appreciate the support. And likewise, if anything I can do, let me know. And uh, thank you very much. And Anyway, I got to go press on and keep the fight up. You both, we all got to keep fighting, man. It's worth it for sure. 100%, man. 100%. And if you're ever coming to Canada, let me know. And uh, I don't know what part of the world you live in, but if I'm ever coming down that way, I'd love to meet you in person and shake your hand. Yeah, I might be up in uh, Montreal, uh, Montreal in the, in the, oh, in the cool. spring. So we'll okay. see. My anyway. brother lives right. there. Thanks, so man. Maybe I'll come visit you when you're there if, if the schedules work out. You take good care of yourself, brother. God bless you. God love you. Keep up the good fight. Listener, Sean Baker, this man is the real deal. He's a warrior for freedom. He's an advocate for my favorite food, steak. And like me, he loves ribeyes. What's there not to like about this dude? He's a man among men. Make sure that you support him. You go to Rivero.com. If you're in the United States, if you got friends in the United States, send them over there. Go to carnivore.diet and go to Amazon or anywhere else you buy books and pick up a copy of his book, The Carnivore Diet. This book has the potential to change your life. I don't say this often about things, but this is something that's affected me very powerfully in a very personal way. You know about my journey of losing 58 pounds this year. Sean Baker, Tony Martin, these two men, they have a lot to do with it, so make sure you take advantage of this. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.